0: Well, I'm excited uh, about that. Anyways, this morning we are continuing through the book of Ephesians, and we have finally made our way to uh, where Paul actually meant to start. We've made made our way to Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. I want to back up just a little bit and talk about the way the book of Ephesians is laid out or the way that Paul starts to organize his thought. If you remember, when we started looking at the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, we were actually calling that a sermon series called The Old You. What we were doing was we were looking at, uh, or or really trying to take hold of, this idea of regeneration and rebirth that is um, a foundational doctrine to our faith and understanding what it means to be saved. We started there looking at the fact that we have to realize that as a Christian, there is an old us that has been passed away. Chapters one and chapter two explore what that means, that there was an old us, that we were so desperately in need of a savior, that we are no different than the rest of the world in that way, except now that there is a new us. There's this Constant concept in the book of Ephesians of identifying with something. And and there's different ways that people identify. People identify with their careers. They say, This is what I do, therefore, this is who I am. They identify with their core values. And they say, This is the kind of person that I am. As Christians, we identify with our Savior. And we can't identify with anything outside of that because this is the most foundational element of who we are. I identify with the Lord Jesus because I am new in him. Yes. I am a sinner like anyone else who has struggled with temptation, who has dealt and gripped with sin. And even now, in my justification as I'm progressively being sanctified, I even continue to deal with the grips of sin as I live in a sinful world. But those temptations and those sins do not mark who I am. I don't identify as a sinner because I am new in Christ. And this is only possible, of course, because of uh, the richness and the magnitude of God's grace. And this is what Paul's building up to as he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, trying to describe just how big God's grace is towards them, how, how magnificent His love is towards them. Every once in a while, when I preach a sermon, I have to give homage to the great preachers that um, came before me. This morning is one of those mornings, and Brother James is going to be very thankful because my sermon points are five points, and they're in alliteration. I'm going to give you my points before we get started, and the, the reason preachers do this is hopefully so that you can remember something that I said a couple of hours from now, um, and I know the reality is, is most likely, by the time we come back together this evening, most of you will have forgotten what this entire sermon was about. So maybe you can remember the points. the five P's of Paul's prayer: the privilege of prayer, the posture of prayer, the partnership of prayer the provision of prayer, and the portion of prayer. We'll move the, through these quickly. But as we look at how Paul prays for this church, realize this is the same prayer that we have for this congregation this morning. Let's begin then by turning to God's Word and preparing our hearts with prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the privilege to come before you, to stand. Uh, before your church and to be able to preach your word, to study your word as we have done this week. Lord, I pray that as we come to you now as a congregation with hearts full of worship after singing to you of the praises that we have and your faithfulness, reminding each other of how you've cared for us and your encouragement, the anchor of hope that we have in you. God, I pray that our hearts would be relieved of any burden that we carry with us. That for this time, Lord, as we turn to you, we would only have hearts ready to listen and ready to respond. God, give us insight into your awesome law and do not withhold yourself from us. God, I pray that we would be able to understand what it is that we are reading. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen. I should have said before we prayed that I would like you to read along with me by opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter three. I will be reading from verses 11 all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 21. So if you aren't there, um, if you wanna make your way there now and follow along with me as I read out loud. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far and far more abundantly than all we ask of Him, ask or think according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, We began looking at Ephesians chapter 3, and I've pointed out a couple of times now, but now that we've reached verse 14, I want to point it out one more time. Paul actually starts this prayer all the way back in verse 1. Notice verse 1 begins, for this reason the same way that verse 14 begins. Paul then interrupts himself in the middle of starting this prayer because he realizes that this prayer, which is for application for everything that he's written before, the people that he's writing to are not ready to receive it. He has to repeat himself and reaffirm the magnitude of God's grace. And what we've been studying over the past couple of weeks is this notion that through the church, God has actually disclosed a secret that has never before been known. Through the revelation of Christ, something so amazing has been imparted to the believers that they have been entrusted with this secret that is so amazing. To really pray for application, we need just a bit longer to marvel at it. Then, beginning in verse 11, Paul says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pointing back to everything he's described, this great mystery revealed, the manifold witness of God coming to light, the angels in heaven suddenly being able to see what is God's plan. With the foundation of the church, the angels went, Of course. All of humanity gasps and we're able to breathe in life for the first time. And this is amazing. This mystery that that God has a plan, not just to save the Jews, not just to save the Gentiles through them, but that they're united together as one body, that everyone united who is in Christ would be united in Christ as one body with fellowship with one another, that they would be able to worship God as co-heirs and as equals. This grace is so big, it's immeasurable. Paul calls it unsearchable. It's in verse 8. Unsearchable. It means you could dive in and you could never explore every nook and cranny. It's immeasurable. You can't quantify it. But notice now in his prayer, what's one thing that he asks for? that you would know all these measurable dimensions. What is the width? What is the length? What is the depth? What is the height of this love that is unsearchable? Paul acknowledges then in verse 12 and 13, what is this great privilege of prayer? You see, in recognizing everything that was in the old self, everything that came before us, everything that we identify with that came before we were justified in Christ, before he called us. What a privilege it is to come to the God who created the entire universe. The God who the highest heavens cannot contain. The God who loves with such an immeasurable, innumerable, unsearchable, unfathomable love, and to pray to Him. Paul writes, We have boldness because it is bold to approach such a God. And we don't do it with trembling. We don't do it with fear, but we do it with confidence because we have met a personal Savior named Jesus. Who loves us and knows us and has that relationship with us. That gives us confidence to know that when we go and we approach the Father and we enter into this throne room, when we share communion and fellowship with other believers and with the Lord God Almighty, that we have confidence To stand before Him and to give Him our intercessions and our prayers. To make requests before Him because He cares for us. In fact, we even have the assurance that He cares enough to listen to us, but we have the assurance that He's doing what is best for us. Talk about boldness. We have confidence. What a privilege it is to approach God in this way. And now Paul asks the church and his readers that he is writing to, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. We get to the second P, the posture of prayer. realize this is significant. Paul's giving us a picture of how he's praying. He's hitting the ground. His knees are hitting the ground and he's praying. And realize this is actually contradictory to the way that most people prayed. The way that people would have prayed during Paul's day would have been like this standing up with their arms raised and their hands, palms faced towards heaven, and they prayed together like this. And Paul says, For this reason, I hit the ground and I bow. Now we could search the Bible for the right posture of prayer and, and we find that well, it isn't so significant that we should always pray on our knees. In fact, we find many examples of people praying standing up, and that's fine and that's well. But here is this picture of bowing. This picture of realizing what it means to boldly approach the throne of God with confidence. Humbly acknowledging the love and the magnitude of Christ. By in fact... There are other instances of bowing on our knees. Other instances where it's contradictory to what is the norm. In fact, if you wanted, turn back to 1 Kings chapter 8. Here we find the consecration of the first temple when it was built by Solomon. The temple's built, it's prepared, everything's laid out the way God has instructed. And Solomon comes before the temple and he's praying to God. He's consecrating the temple. He's praying to God. And here he writes, start in verse 22. I'm going to read a little bit and then I'll jump down to 54. But look at Solomon's prayer. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, Lord, The God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servant, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do and walk before me faithfully, as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised to your servant David, my father, come true. Pause there for a second. We talked about this great mystery that wasn't understood in the Old Testament that comes to revelation through Jesus' ministry and the establishment of the church during Jesus' life. Look at what David says next with bewilderment. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayers and his plea for mercy. Lord, my God, hear the cry and the prayer of your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day. This place of which you said, my name shall be there. So that you will hear the prayer of your servant praise towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant for your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. And then David begins to go on and and to pray how this place will be a special establishment for people to make covenant with each other before God as witness. And of course, we know, we fast forward and we jump to what happens when Jesus is crucified. And not this temple, but the rebuilding of the temple that comes later through Nehemiah's ministry. What happens is that the the curtain that separates the special dwelling place of God is is torn apart. Because what Paul's writing is this special dwelling place of God is no longer in this uh, geographical area, but it's inside of the heart of the believer. This is amazing. What God is is revealing. Even David wonders will God dwell on earth? And what he's been writing so far in Ephesians all points towards this. Not only is he going to dwell on earth, but he's going to establish a church. Something that is going to be so. Amazing and astounding that if you really understand it and love it, you realize how special it is. He's going to unite people together through Him. Not only is He bringing salvation to the whole world, not only is He bringing a means of salvation, but He's establishing His body. When we look at this posture of prayer, if we jump down to verse 54 in 1 Kings 8, Solomon finished with all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, and he rose before the altar of the Lord, and when he had been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven, he stood and blessed the whole assembly. These two prayers, Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 and the prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings are almost parallel pictures. They're bowing with a posture of humility. They're acknowledging God's plan and His faithfulness to fulfill it. You see, the church is God's plan to bring the good news to the whole world. He has nor needs any plan B. Both. Acknowledge God's placement and the immensity of his person. In Paul's prayer, he asks that we would know what is the width and the depth and the height of God's love. Solomon wonders, how is it possible that this place that I've built is going to contain you, God, when even the highest heaven cannot contain you? You are infinite, This posture of prayer comes by realizing what a privilege it is to know God. I said Paul writes for this reason, pointing to God's great plan unfolding a mystery being exposed. And here we find that the real posture of prayer isn't necessarily something physical that we do. But it is when we pray the way we are meant to pray. That is not asking God's will to align with what we want. But asking despite whatever question, whatever ask, whatever intercession we may have, that our will would align with His. This posture of prayer is one that says, God I know what I want to ask for, but you know better than I do what is best for me. And God, I want to be ready for that. can't really convince an infinite. In fact, I wouldn't want to if I could. When we pray with the correct posture, we surrender everything that we have to God. this is what Paul does as he enters with boldness and confidence to this throne room. Of course, we've talked a great deal so far in our study of Ephesians of the importance of unity in the church. More specifically, the unity that was between Jew and Gentile, these two people that had conflict with one another. And um, fortunately, um, as we've studied this, you know we've all made clear that this is a problem that was specific to the church in Ephesus. No church, especially ours, deals with any disunity whatsoever. And so uh, we haven't had to spend too much time studying that. <laughs> Paul reminds us again. Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. There is a family register for this great establishment called the church that records the name of every person who is found in Christ. We call each other brother and sister, not as a formality or because it's an interesting way to address people, but because we realize the fellowship that we have with one another. Rather, the partnership that we share in Christ. Uh, I can't read. I cannot read. Ephesians 3.15 without thinking of one of Charles Spurgeon's more popular sermons. And, and it, it wasn't a regular sermon. It was, I believe, a sermon that was given during a funeral. Uh, Spurgeon, right and the sermons, titled Saints in Heaven and Earth, One Family. And Spurgeon in the sermon develops this idea of this great family that we have in heaven people that we don't even know, distant relatives that we are connected to that we aren't even familiar with. And I'm sure as the past years have gone, past several years have passed, we are all very familiar with what is bereavement. And I won't try to preach Spurgeon's address from Ephesians 3.15 But if you are interested, if you would go search for this sermon, it is a tremendous encouragement to realize our hope in heaven is established in something so great. He looks back at those people who are lost and the way that we experience loss on earth and and that it's something that we should feel. And that when the time has come that God calls his saints home, while we do celebrate knowing where they are at and knowing the great provision of our Lord, it is natural to feel the loss here on earth. But what a family we have established in Christ. We have a fellowship which means to share things in common. This is the same fellowship that John writes about in in his letter to the churches in the Asia Minor area. It's a fellowship where we can approach one another, where we share in a common uh, need of encouragement for one another. It is as magnificent as God's grace when we really consider it. I told you I would move fast and I hope I've held up to my promise. We've made it through three points so far this morning. So far, we've talked about the privilege of prayer, the posture of prayer, and I've just finished talking about the partnership of prayer. Now we get to the good stuff. Paul continues in verse 16, and we look at the provision of prayer. This is what he's actually asking for in light of everything he's developed up to this point. Paul writes, and I'll read verse 16 and 17 for you again, that according to the riches of his glory and stop, that's a lot of riches. This God who is immeasurable, innumerable, unfathomable. That's a lot of great riches. According to these riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend. I already told you where we're going with this. We just talked about this unsearchable love that we have found in Christ and this grace that he has established for us. And Paul's praying that we would be able to comprehend how to measure this. We're not going to be able to do that on our own. This provision to be able to approach it comes from the strengthening of the inner man. This is the inner being that is inside of all of us. I I think we all understand that it is important to take care of our physical well-being. If you sleep all day and become lethargic, you're probably going to stay lethargic. If you eat bad food, you will probably not be at your best physical condition. I think we're all aware that there's this inner being inside of us that we have to take care of in the same way. If we think self-deprecating thoughts, we will reaffirm to ourselves what is that of which we are self-deprecating. Our our self-esteem will drop. Uh, We will will, uh, begin to doubt ourselves. If we go around our entire lives saying, I'm sorry, every time we have an interaction with someone, we will actually begin to believe that we have something to be sorry for. I don't know if you've ever tried that trick. but Instead of saying, I'm sorry, you say, thank you. I walked in front of somebody. I'm sorry, I walked in front of you. Oh, thank you for your patience. It's it's actually a trick to to cure some of, I think, the, the ailments that are facing people whenever they just think that they're in the way all the time. Here's this inner man that is inside of us. And through him being strengthened, we're going to be able to comprehend what is this great love of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about something silly like our our self-esteem or 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 whatnot. Rather, I'm talking about the spiritual condition that is able to face what I said is the will of God, because sometimes God will God's will does not align with what our will is. Sometimes we're dealt a hard hard hand sometimes we lose someone that we're not ready to lose and it's an immature response in those situations to cry out to God why could you do this I'm not saying it's wrong because this great God with this immeasurable love hears those prayers And he comforts us. He allows us to experience pain. But we realize he knows more than us. That is why prayer is a surrendering, it doesn't make things that suck, suck less. This is why it's so important for the strengthening of the inner man. Because I would venture that every person in this congregation has not led a life that is without strife in some area. I would venture even so far that even the children in the back have experienced some disappointment in life that they they have had to come to grips with. And when we look back at all those experiences and those things that we've overcome and we see God working in the circumstances of our life, when we see the way that He has cared for us or rather carried us along through all of these things, we are strengthened and reminded that this God that has led us to whatever we are facing now is going to continue to carry us through it. Or as Solomon wrote, as you've been faithful to the promises that you gave to my father, David. Don't you see how important it is to remember what God has done for you already? If you escape past it and spend no time saying, thank you, God, or just being mesmerized in the way that He has provided for you, you will never be able to be strengthened in the moment that He has brought you to now. The great provision of love comes from a lifetime. Even before salvation, I can look back in my life and see the way that God protected me or led me to the moment that I would come to know Him. And what greater gift is there than that? According to the riches of His glory, and my, what riches they are! To dwell, we find that word. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. There's two primary words in the Greek for taking residence somewhere. One is that I would kind of just live somewhere. To dwell means that I make a place my home. It's my, my corner place. And that's the word being used here, that Christ would dwell inside of our hearts that he would take up residence, that he would really be there. The presence of Jesus in dwelling is something for us to know and to know through faith. You have your Bible and you have your knees. Use them. We need spiritual strength to allow Jesus to dwell in our hearts. Because there is something inside of every person that resists the influence of the indwelling Jesus. When we allow Christ to dwell, take up residence, to live, to have access to every part of our life, that is when we find ourselves rooted and grounded. I think we're familiar with what these are word pictures of, a tree that roots itself, wrapping its roots around rock and and the the dirt, and so much so that it can't be uprooted without significant effort or a house being laid and the foundation is grounded, so much so that, that after years of weathering that that foundation won't crack through faith in Christ. dwells within our heart. These are the great provisions of prayer. But now we look to the portion, this great portion of prayer because we've been building up to this point that we would know how to measure what is immeasurable Here Paul writes that you would know what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What is this that we are coming to? Paul just spent he interrupted himself because it was so important for him to explain that what is the love of Christ is unsearchable. And now he's praying for application that we would be able to do whatever this spiritual geometry is that is before us, that we would know what is the length and the depth and the width. How are we going to measure what is infinite? How are we going to quantify what he's asking us to understand, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? I mean, that's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? To know something that surpasses knowledge. Oh, this is bigger than us. It's bigger than you. It's definitely bigger than us. What is the length? What is the width? What is the depth? I think when we ask ourselves, what is the width? I imagine standing before a river and asking myself, what is the width of God's love? I don't know. If you've never seen the ocean, you might not understand what I'm talking about. But if you have, do you remember the first time that you saw the ocean? Growing up in Arkansas, my eyes have never actually seen as far as they can possibly see because there's always something in the way. I can only see as far as the next obstacle is. The uh, first time I saw the ocean, uh, we, we went to Daytona Beach, was the first ocean I saw. And so there's a little river that we go over and I thought the river was huge. My, that's big. Is that it? No, look a little bit further. And so we get to the top of the, the, the bridge that we were crossing. And you just see vastness. And we got to the beach and for the first time my eyes could see as far as they could possibly see. The horizon line was just a line. I think back in history some guy somewhere somebody at one point in time said, "You know what I want to do? I want to build a boat and go out in that." That was not me if I So big. How wide is this river of God's love? It's wide enough to cover every sin that is present in my life. Solomon prayed when consecrating the temple that God would hear and that he would be faithful to forgive. How wide is the river of God's love? It is wide enough to not only cover up all of my sins, but it is wide enough to cover up the sins of the entire world. Standing at this river, I ask myself, how long is it? What is the length? For how long has God's love been coming towards me, and when will it run out? God tells the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31:3. when did the love of God start towards me? How long will it continue? And God says, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. The river of God's love does not begin. It does not end. It is everlasting. <coughs> Wide enough to cover the entire sins of the entire world and long enough To last through eternity, all the way in eternity past, all the way to eternity future. How will I measure the depth? Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul writes again. But Christ made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of death of the cross. You can go no lower than the death of the cross. What is the height? Maybe the question to ask here is, how high does God's love take me? It takes anyone who would place their faith in Christ to the highest heavens to worship with an eternal family. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 6, He has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wide enough to include every person, long enough to last through eternity, deep enough to reach the worst sinner, high enough to take us to heaven. When we consider the magnitude of God's love, it is easy for this message to somehow get wrapped up in sentimentality. And some, I think, even critics of our faith would say that this is some sort of belief that Christians have come up with as a way of counseling themselves or even consoling themselves in times of grief that we would have something to hold on to. But when we read of this magnitude, let me point out that Paul writes that this love of Christ is not something we can simply know inside of ourselves, but this knowledge surpasses what is possible through knowing. Let me challenge you this morning. You might understand the words that I have said, but there is a chance you do not understand them. Because this love can only be experienced When we hit our knees in the posture of prayer in our times of greatest need, we come to the Father and He is able to do more, abundantly more than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ. I have done my best to hopefully bring to revelation what is this incredible love of Christ. This prayer for application that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus is the same prayer that as your pastor, I pray for you. That we wouldn't just come here to seek intellectual assent or be able to know what is this great mystery revealed in God's Word, but that we would experience it for ourselves. In other words, when we teach the Bible or we study it, we do not do so for information. We do it for transformation. And even in trying to explain this spiritual trigonometry, my human words have failed. I pray that you would be able to understand the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the encouragement that we find in your word. The way that you have guided us this morning in worship. And Lord, I ask that as we reflect now, as we praise you, As we come together as a church to sing your praises, God, that you would continue to convict our hearts and lead us to knowing you. I ask this in Jesus' heavenly name. Amen.